0: Beloved, I hope that you take advantage of the devotional that's provided on a weekly basis, which has the songs that we will be singing, because the lyrics of the songs we sing so richly reflect the truth and the blessing and the doctrines of the passages that we have coming before us on every Sunday morning. Uh, There aren't many hymns, if any, that I like better that are more Personal to me than before the throne of God above, which we sang before. Uh, the initial words, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Uh, perfect tense, real tense. Right now, we are corporally and individually worshiping before the throne of God by virtue of the strong and perfect plea we have from our mediator, from uh, the author and perfecter of our faith, from the intercessor. We have before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads on our behalf. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Again, present tense, and that's who ever lives. The ever goes with the lives, not with the who. He ever lives permanently, eternally on our behalf. That flows from the passage we have this morning. And before we go to our passage, which will be in Hebrews chapter 7, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. I want to grab a quick illustration from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, from the nation of Israel to remind ourselves the magnitude of what it means for you and I to be before the throne of the Most High perfectly holy God in heaven. You'll remember that back in Exodus 19 and 20, God established the covenant with the nation of Israel, the Mosaic covenant, what the author of Hebrews calls the old covenant. That's the only one of the six biblical covenants that has a syllogism attached to it that has an if-then statement, where in Exodus 19 and 20, God says, if you do these things, then this will And he laid out the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 and 20. And then you'll remember after God rescued the nation from Egypt, from their Egyptian captivity, and even vanquished the Egyptian army and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, the nation in rebellion and transgression basically violated every single one of the Ten Commandments that God had laid out before them in the Golden Calf episode. In Exodus 33, at the beginning, Moses interceded on behalf of Israel before God. And then picking it up in verse 18, Moses entreats God with a request. Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. And he said, God said to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, watch this, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Beloved, the point is, even a man as great as Moses on this side of eternity... On this side of the glorified body that we anticipate and wait for, no man or woman could withstand the full glory, the full majesty, the full holiness of God. We would be vaporized in a second. And that is the backdrop behind what it means for you and I to approach the throne of grace with confidence and to be before the throne of God, worshiping together. Please now turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Our passage this morning are verses 20 through 28. And we know that in Hebrews, God opened up this magnificent sermonic epistle with pointing to Christ as, in a sense, the final prophet. He's the final word of God. He is a fulfillment of the prophet who had come that he had told even back to Moses in Deuteronomy and we know also that the author of Hebrews has brought out the fact that not only is Jesus the son the prophet he is also King he's King Jesus but the central emphasis and the majority of the text in the middle of this epistle where we find ourselves right here in this passage emphasizes the focus is on Jesus as the perfect high priest. The perfect high priest that you and I need. He is the prophet who represented and the prophet and the king who in a sense represents God's law and God's rule before us. And he is also the priest who represents us before God. Now, in chapter 7, the author is finishing out, and he's actually expositing and bringing out this, this sermon that he gave about a man named Melchizedek. Uh, earlier in chapter 5, he had told his original audience, his original Jewish audience, that he wanted to give them something and teach them how Christ is the perfect high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But they weren't ready and they weren't prepared for it. So chapter 5, 11 through the end of chapter 6, he went off on this diversion to deal with some pastoral matters. But in chapter 7 he picked up and what we have here is this divinely inspired sermon from the author on the subject of Jesus Christ being the perfect high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In the first 10 verses, the emphasis and the focus is on the man Melchizedek. That this man, this man of mystery that appeared in Genesis 14 in three verses with Father Abraham, that he was greater even than Father Abraham. And so the focus in the first 10 verses again here is on the man Melchizedek. And because Melchizedek is greater even than Father Abraham... Therefore, Jesus, who is a high priest of the new covenant, is greater than the previous high priest in the old covenant that got established even with the nation of Israel through Aaron and the Levites. And then in verses 11 through 19 that we looked at last week, it's kind of a transition focus where he moves from the man Melchizedek to the priesthood of Jesus. You see the word, we see the word Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek twice in the first 10 verses, four times in verses 11 through 19, but he's transitioning with more of the focus on the priesthood. Now, in our passage this morning, verses 20 through 28, we won't see the name Melchizedek at all because the focus is even transition from the priesthood of Jesus and the new covenant to the priest himself. And, beloved, what we see is we see the author giving three closing arguments for Jesus in the author's exposition of Melchizedek. He's piling up proof that Jesus is, again, the perfect high priest that you and I need. The three closing arguments is that Jesus is the promised priest, the permanent priest, and then the perfect priest. And, beloved, the intent here from the author to his audience, from God to you and to me, is that you and I would draw near to God. That you and I would persevere in the faith. That we would not drift away. That we wouldn't neglect so great a salvation. That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our salvation and our worship of and even worship with the risen priest king, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first closing argument in the author's exposition of Melchizedek, namely that Jesus, the Son of God, is the promised priest. And what the author does here, he continues what we've seen through the whole epistles. He continues his contrasting comparison. The thrust of the entire letter is that the new is superior to the old, the new covenant, the new blood, the new mediator is superior to the old covenant, the old blood, the old mediation that took place. And that's why he begins, look at verse 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath. So we'll pause there for a second. That might offend some of the ears of our English professors in the English language, but a double negative in the Greek is allowable. We could rephrase this as we would put it in our English, saying inasmuch as with an oath oath inasmuch as with an oath oath and then he breaks into this parenthetical statement in verse 21 now what we'll look at though is the word oath and the word oath here brackets our passage he begins verse 20 with an oath and then in verse 28 at the end we also will see oath again if you were here last week or if you even look at verses 11 and verse 19 he, the author brackets verses 11 through 19 with the word perfect now he brackets verses 20 through 28 with an oath. And then also, so you know where we're going at the very end, there's an outer bracket, which is getting back again to the subject of perfect. So perfect in verse 11, perfect in verse 19, and then perfect again as the final culmination in verse 28. But the word oath is what we're focusing on here. He is the promised Priest. Uh, We've seen the word oath twice in chapter 6. We see it four times here in chapter 7. And beloved, understand this. The Bible and even the Bible and even the account of church history could be understood in a simple fashion as mainly describing God doing what he said he would do. We know that when God says something, that settles the issue. When God says something, that is very true. But God, in a condescension demand for our benefit, for our encouragement, will at times add an oath, basically a swearing by Himself to His word. So, Back in Hebrews 6, as I mentioned before, we see the word oath there twice, and the oath he's talking about there was an oath, a promise that God gave to Abraham. God had told Abraham, the word from God came to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, where he told Abraham that he would have many seed, he would have a huge number of descendants, and that God would give Abraham's descendants this promised land and that all the nations of the world would be blessed by that. So that was the word of God to Abraham. But then in Genesis 16, as Abraham was aging for the benefit of Abraham's weakness and to strengthen his faith, God gave him an oath, gave him a promise. Look at chapter 6 here in Hebrews, verses 16 and 17. Men swear by one greater than themselves And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Verse 17, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. Now, beloved, again, God's word is always certain. When God does something, it is right. When God says something, it is true. But what God does here is he does this for our benefit and from our viewpoint, and it makes his promises even more emphatic. So he did that by citing God's oath or promise to Abraham in Hebrews chapter 6. But now in Hebrews chapter 7, he points that in one sense, perhaps an even greater promise because it is involved within the triune Godhead, God head himself it's a promise from God the Father to God the Son and that's where we see that the Lord has sworn verse 22 21 excuse me the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever now what the author is doing here is he's quoting from Psalm 110 verse 4 I mentioned this man, Melchizedek, appeared in Genesis 14 in three verses, verses 18 through 20. Some thousand years after Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, King David mentions Melchizedek in one verse in Psalm 110, verse 4. This is the fourth citation of the author of Hebrews of Psalm 110, verse 4. He did it in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 7, verse 17. In fact, look back just a few verses to verse 17 here in Hebrews 7. We read the words, and we looked at this last week. It is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's interesting in that citation and the previous two the author of Hebrews cited only the second portion of Psalm 110, verse 4. He didn't cite the entire passage. He didn't cite the beginning. Psalm 110, 4 in its entirety reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This time in chapter 7, verse 22, excuse me, 21, he is... Bringing in that first part, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, and here at this point, he doesn't mention according to the order of Melchizedek. In fact, uh, the name Melchizedek appears once, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, eight times in Hebrews. The last time we see the name Melchizedek was back in verse 17. All this to say that as this is the word of God, as God is bearing along the author, but even in the human author's brilliance behind this as part of this transition from the man Melchizedek at the beginning of chapter 7. This transitional section, verses 11 through 19 in the priesthood, now the focus again is on the priest, the promised priest. That's why he doesn't even mention the name Melchizedek again, because as great and as significant as Melchizedek was, he was but a shadow. The focus, the intent is on the substance. And what we have is the concluding focus, the priest. So much more, look at verse 22. So much more, so much the more. Also, look at what it says. Jesus has become the guarantee. Beloved, in his focus on the priest, Jesus is your mediator. And what he says here, he is also your guarantor. Uh, The word is translated in the New American Standard as guarantee. We could also understand it as the guarantor. It's actually the only appearance of that Greek word in all of Scripture. But that Greek word appeared in many different legal documents in ancient times. And again, this could be guarantee or guarantor. What the author is bringing out here is the whole idea of a priest being a mediator. When you think of having a divine mediator, What a glorious, blessed thought, what blessed assurance that is. But in some very real sense, it's even better to have a divine guarantor, to have a divine guarantee, buttressed, strengthened upon the rock of the foundation of the word of God, and not just the word of God, but the oath of God himself. That is what is behind this promised priest, Jesus, that he has for us here and this idea of God being a surety, of God being a guarantee, while I indicated this one word doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture. The idea can be found elsewhere. For example, Psalm 119, verse 122, the psalmist writes, be surety, be a guarantee for your servant for good. Don't let the arrogant oppress me. Or the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 38, verse 14, He is lamenting his weakness before the Lord and pleading with the Lord on his own behalf. He says, like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights, O Lord. I am oppressed. Be my security. What the author of Hebrews brings out is that Jesus Christ, the promised priest, is your security. He is your guarantee. He is the guarantor of your salvation. And at the beginning of verse 22, those words, uh, so much the more also, these are repeated words of infinite contrast. This is, in a sense, and this kind of violates my engineer's brain, but it is the measure of infinity. So much the more also, as wonderful and as great and as good in its purpose of the law. And of the old priesthood, so much more so, infinitely more so is right and appropriate and is the blessed assurance of the new covenant and the new priest. And again, a mediator is good, a guarantor is that much better. And what, look at the text, what is he the guarantor of? What is he a guarantee of? A better covenant. Now, this is the first mention of the word covenant in Hebrews. Uh, You may have heard me, as I've been preaching through here, I've talked about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and that's behind the doctrine that we've read here, but this is actually the first appearance in Hebrews of that word, but it's the first of 17 references of covenant. From this point forward, from 722 through 1324, the idea of the covenant becomes a central part of this letter. In fact, so much so, even though we're a little bit past the midpoint section of the book, The idea of a covenant is so central to the importance of this whole epistle. Some commentators have called this epistle to the Hebrews the epistle of the covenant because it's right at the center. Now, Another thing to understand is the word, the Greek word translated covenant here, could also and should also be understood as a testament. It's a covenant, it is a testament. And it's interesting because we understand that the nation of Israel, the original Jewish audience, in fact, Christ Himself, the Bible they had before God wrote the New Testament was what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus Himself referred to the Old Testament as. The Law and the Prophets. Another place he talks about the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. We, in our Bibles, on this side of the completion of the canon of Scripture, we have two parts. We have thirty-nine books and twenty-seven books. The Old Testament and the Old—excuse uh, me—the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the very word covenant that we see here in verse 22, that's the word from which you get in your Bibles the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same word. That is the strength and the weight of what the author is bringing out here. And there are, to understand the thinking of the audience and in our right interpretation as good students of the word, I mentioned this once earlier in the sermon, there are six biblical covenants. There are five unilateral eternal covenants and there's one bilateral temporal or temporary covenants and one simple rule that is good to help us when we go to scripture is if God calls something a covenant then we should call it a covenant um, we, we shouldn't you know suck covenants out of our thumb and make them up and if you come from a different perspective I say that with complete love and respect this is the intramural discussion but in the bible there are five biblical unilateral eternal covenants, where basically God says, I will do this thing. There's the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. The one bilateral temporary covenant is the Mosaic covenant that, again, God established with Israel in Exodus 19 and 20, and that Israel immediately broke in Exodus 32 and the rest of the time. So the point is, and the main covenant, the main old covenant that the author would be thinking of here in the audience would be the Abrahamic covenant. And one could ask the question, what could be better than the Abrahamic covenant? What could be better than God promising Abraham that he would give him multiple seed, multiple descendants that as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore so great would be the number of his descendants, that he would give him a land and that he would bless all the nations. What could be better than that covenant? Simply put, a covenant that saves you, a covenant that has the forgiveness of sin because in the Noahic, Abrahamic, Priestly and Davidic covenant, there's no provision for the forgiveness of sin it is only in the new covenant where you see the forgiveness of sin. And all the promises that God gives in the other four unilateral eternal covenants are based upon and made possible by fulfilling of the new covenant. So turn, for example, to Jeremiah 31 to get just an understanding of the significance of, what, of how we should approach the text and what the original audience even was thinking Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And that would be the Mosaic covenant, Exodus 29 and 20. Verse 32 here, My covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. And I'll pause there for a second. I'm emphasizing, you see, all these places where God says, I will, I will, I will. These covenants that I mentioned before are basically coming from God and His sovereign good plan and end of verse 33 I will be their God and they shall be my people and they won't teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for watch this the end of verse 34 I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more beloved that is God's promise of the old covenant to the nation of Israel, of the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, which lays the foundation for the new covenant and even the New Testament that you and I are studying even today. I'll give you another example. Remember Zacharias, the father of John the forerunner, John the baptizer, and Zacharias prophetic prayer and praise to God in Luke chapter 1 in that prayer Zacharias talked about the Abrahamic covenant he talked about the Davidic covenant he talked about the national land promise of the Abrahamic covenant he talked about the rule David's rule of the throne but the focus of Zacharias heart when he was prophesying and praising the birth of his son John was on the new covenant Luke Chapter 1, verse 77 to give to his people, Zacharias said, the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, that is the point. God made that new covenant promise to Israel. And I'll use the same phrase I've used recently. There are some among us that are doubly blessed to be Jewish. Uh, ethnically Jewish believers, but even the majority of us who are Gentile, we are part of the beneficiaries of that new covenant promise that God gave to the nation of Israel, part of the blessings that he gave. And here in Hebrews 7, the emphasis is on, notice the human name Jesus. Jesus, He shifts from the Son to Jesus here. And in fact, in the original phrase, Jesus is at the end, emphatically at the end of the sentence. It literally says, so much the more also a better covenant has become the guarantee of Jesus. The author is bringing out Jesus' humanity as the bedrock foundation of his promised priesthood. Jesus, the Son of God, born among us, Beloved is your guarantee and your guarantor. This is the beginning of your and my blessed assurance. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, had these choice words to say. He said, Jesus guarantees the perpetual fulfillment of the covenant, which he mediates on the manward side as well as on the Godward side. As the son of God, he confirms God's eternal covenant with his people. As his people's representative, he satisfies its terms with perfect acceptance in God's sight. So, beloved, Jesus, your perfect high priest, is the promised priest. Secondly, he is the permanent priest. He is your mediator, your guarantor, and in verses 23 through 25, he is right now your intercessor. He is your, you could understand, unbreakable surety from being the promised pe- uh, priest. Here he is your undying Savior. Look at verse 23. The author brings out another contrast, and he says, And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he on the other hand. So we saw this on the one hand and on the other hand contrast back in verses 18 and 19. There the contrast was between the setting aside of a former commandment, a setting aside of the ceremonial part of the law of the Aaronic priesthood, and on the other hand, a bringing in of a better hope. The contrast here is the former priests who, on the one hand, part of their problem was they kept dying. Uh, The uh, Jewish historian Josephus, the Greek, Greek, is he Jewish Greek or Greek? Anyway, Josephus, the historian, calculated that there were 83 priests, 83, excuse me, high priests in between Aaron and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But the contrast here is between the plural and the singular between the temporal and the eternal. That is the great, that is the infinite contrast. But he, on the other hand, watch this, because he abides forever. Uh, In that beautiful song before the throne of God, again, because he lives forever, he ever lives to plead and make the intercession for you and for me. The point here is he lives forever. He abides forever. His death, to be sure, Jesus the man died, but death could not hold him. The grave could not conquer him. Therefore, his death was not the final act. His death was eclipsed by his resurrection, by his victory over the grave. And it is because of this, look at again the text, because he abides forever, he holds his priesthood permanently, unchangeably. It's, it's unchanged violated. It's inviolable. The idea is that his priesthood is not capable of being violated, released, destroyed, cut off, abrogated, canceled in any way, shape, or form. He ever lives to plead for you and for me. And this is part of his humanity. He is, we know, he was 100% God, is 100% God, and will always be 100% God. Now in his incarnation, he was 100% human and is 100% human and always will be as well. Two natures. And what the author has already brought out was the emphasis of his humanity. In chapter 2, verse 18, beloved, because Jesus is human like you, he is able to help you in In chapter 4, verse 15, because of his humanity, he's able to sympathize with you and with me. Here, in verse 25, the author moves from his ability to help and his ability to sympathize to his ability to save. And, beloved, verse 25 is a key verse. It's a key verse in this passage. It's a key verse in chapter 7. Uh, 7.25 is a key verse in all of Hebrews, and I would say it's a key verse in all of Scripture. Look at it. Hence also, he is able to save forever. Save forever, completely, to the uttermost. He has forever met all divine, just, holy claims against sinners like me. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And this harkens back to what we talked about before, before the throne of God above. Seeing God face to face without being consumed by his holy wrath and fury is what is at stake here. And then what the author does as he continues is he shifts from the past work of Christ, from his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, even his coronation as king at the right hand of the Father. He shifts from the past to the present, to his work of intercession, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save forever, pantalace, not pantalones, this isn't Spanish, pantalace, he always lives, pantate, always lives forever. That is your permanent priest that the author is giving to us here. He's your mediator, your guarantor, he's your intercessor. And it's amazing, we know that the Holy Spirit is our intercessor. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. You can think of Romans 8, where most of Romans 8 is written by Paul to the church in Rome to help the church and help you and I understand that in the same way we could no more save ourselves at the beginning, God rescued us and saved us from our path of destruction. We couldn't hold on to our salvation anymore, and it is the Holy Spirit who secures our salvation in the family of God, as bricks in the temple of God. That's why in Romans 8, verse 27, Paul writes, he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But also, in verse 34 of Romans 8, Paul also, similar to the author of Hebrews here, lets us know that Christ Jesus also intercedes for us. Romans eight thirty four: Christ Jesus also intercedes for us. This is a divine both and. And this is flowing from not just new revelation in the New Testament and the New Covenant, but even in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this in his great suffering servant chapter of Isaiah 53. Verse 12, Isaiah says, and this is God speaking of Jesus, the man. I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's what Isaiah prophesied, and that's what the author of Hebrews tells us he is doing right here, right now. Charles Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers brought out this element and this dynamic even in the context of the mighty sacrifice that Jesus provided on our behalf to satisfy the holy justice and to propitiate, to quench the wrath of a holy just God. Spurgeon said this, quote, The curse of the law was not easily taken away. In fact, there was but one by, one way whereby it could be removed. The lightning was in God's hand. It must be launched. The sword of God's wrath was unsheathed. Divine justice must be satisfied. Vengeance must be ready. Vengeance must fall. How then is a sinner to be saved? The only answer is this. The Son of God appears and he says, Father, launch your thunderbolts at me. Here is my breast, plunge the sword of justice here. Here are my shoulders, let the lash of vengeance fall on them. Thus Christ, our substitute, came forth and stood for us, the just for the unjust, watch this, so that he might bring us to God. Beloved. He's the perfect mediator, guarantor, and intercessor for you because he combines Godhead and manhood perfectly in his own person. And, beloved, your pathway through this world is provided for, cared for, and protected by Jesus. Jesus, your enthroned and seated priest king. He is your enthroned Seated priest king is the one you come to and the one you come through. That's the message of him being your promised priest and your permanent priest. And then finally, the third and closing argument in the author's exposition of these great truths is Jesus is the perfect priest in verses 26 through 28. Uh, these three concluding verses have been called by some the great hymn to the high priest. And what the author does here is he finishes his exposition of this meaty topic of Jesus being a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, by citing the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, namely the sinlessness of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus of the son. The first is his person, his sinlessness. He is the sinless one. Look at verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. When he says there at the beginning, for it was fitting, he's saying it was fitting for God in his holiness, God in his grace, and in his mercy, and in his patience, and his long-suffering. Perfectly fitting for us. It was fitting for us in our need, but not in our merit. It's a reminder that we deserve Nothing but justice. And we deserve nothing but judgment. It is God's grace and mercy. And because he is graceful and merciful, it is fitting that you and I would have such a high priest. And then he describes him holy, innocent, and undefiled. This is a comprehensive picture of Jesus in his purity. He is inherently pure. That's that first Word holiness. He's inherently pure in his nature and he remains pure in all his contacts. Uh, the word translated holy here is hosios. The normal Greek word that's translated as holy when you see it in the New Testament is hagios, And that describes more of our position as holiness. And just that's part of the inherent nature of God Himself. The word Hosios, especially when describing Jesus, to be sure has a big part of his nature, but it has kind of more of an element of being unpolluted, unstained. Uh, For example, Paul used this word when he wrote to Titus. In Titus 1, verse 8, in describing the qualifications and characteristics of godly elders, he said, I want the men in every, or excuse me, he says, they should be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, same word, self-controlled. Or maybe to help us even understand a little better, there's a picture that we get from 1 Timothy 2.8, where Paul says, I want the men in every pray, place to pray, lifting up holy hands, same word, without wrath wrath or dissension, with unpolluted hands. So what the author of Hebrews is describing here is Christ is inherently pure in his nature which reflects itself out in his behavior and that takes us from his holiness to his innocence and his undefiled he's holy he's innocent meaning un or meaning non evil and he's undefiled unstained free from being deformed and debased so the author is strengthening his sinlessness he's undefiled unsoiled unstained uncontaminated he does no evil And these latter two also bring out the element that no evil touches him, though he came in contact with sinful people. He encountered Satan in the wilderness. He touched the leper, and the leper was clean. He experienced death himself, the son did, but death could not hold him. He's the holy flower of deity. God manifested in flesh. He is perfectly pure, holy, innocent, and undefiled. And... Earlier in the letter, as we even saw her before, the author emphasized his identity with us. In chapter 2, chapter 4, and even here as well, his identity with us, with his brethren. But now he shifts his focus to emphasize his, not his identification with us, but his separation from us. He continues, he is separated from sinners. So this is another divine both and. Jesus both received sinners into his presence. Thieves, beggars, prostitutes, scribes and Pharisees with satanic pride. He entertained and received these people into his presence, but he was not touched and stained. He was separated from sinners. He received sinners and he was separated from sinners. God wants you and I to know, beloved you and I, dear friend, to know that he is like other men. He's like other people, other women. He stands with other men and women, and he stands completely unique above them. His sinless person sets him apart from all other men and women. And that's why the end of verse 26, he finishes, and exalted above the heavens. In his humanity, he is exalted above the heavens. The author said the similar statement back in chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So that is his person, his sinlessness. Finally, he wraps up, the author does, with his work, and that is his sacrifice. Who doesn't need daily, verse 27. Who doesn't need daily. Like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And this is A recapitulation of what he's taught before. Back in chapter 5 at the beginning, he was letting us know that the high priests in the Aaronic priesthood, even as God had ordained them, they had a purpose, but they were also beset with weakness. So before they could offer sacrifices on behalf of the rest of the people, they had to offer up sacrifices on their own behalf because they also were weak. They also sinned, but not Christ Christ doesn't have to do that. Their problem was they kept dying. The problem here is they kept sinning. But because of this, at the end of verse 27, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is the first explicit mention in Hebrews that Jesus Christ was not just the priest offering the sacrifice, but he was himself the very sacrifice himself. This is the first explicit reference of that, but this will be elaborated extensively in chapters 8 through 10. And this once for all, what a key phrase. It's finished. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. One man died for all once for all. He died for all, Jew and Gentile, male and female, weak and strong, old and young, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, black, black, brown, white, yellow, red, ad infinitum, beloved. One died for all, once for all. And then, I'll take that as an amen. And then a final summary in verse 28, a final contrast between The law and an oath between the lesser and the greater. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Understand this the author's point here is not to emphasize and belittle the ineffectiveness of even the priests, and it's certainly not to belittle the law. The law, the old covenant, was not bad. The law, the old covenant, was good. It served its purpose. It We could say it this way, the law faithfully demonstrated God's forbearance. The oath perfectly secures God's forgiveness. The law faithfully demonstrated God's forbearance of sin, him passing over. But that was all pointing towards forward to the work and sacrifice of Christ so that God's oath, God's Father's oath to God the Son in his humanity that there would be a perfect and complete securing of the forgiveness of sin. And there's a big difference between forbearance and forgiveness. But the word of the oath, the author finishes, which came back after the law appoints a son. And we see here, the author moves from the human name Jesus back to the son. Appoints a son made perfect forever. Again, Perfect brackets, verses 11 through 19. Oath brackets, 20 through 28. But now we get the outer uh, bracket. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Made perfect forever. He went from untested sinlessness to tested sinlessness. He went from unproven obedience to proven obedience. He went from being the perfect son to being your and my perfect savior. That is what the author brings out here. Beloved, he purchased your salvation. He prays for your salvation. Robert Murray McShane said, quote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Dearly beloved Jesus Christ, your mediator, guarantor, intercessor, author and perfecter of your faith is praying for you and for me right here, right now. He purchased your salvation, he prays for your salvation, he protects your salvation so that you and I would persevere in the faith. This is the great doctrine of perseverance of the saints coming from the divine side and by way of application coming from our side. That is the great joy, that is the great blessing, that is the great message of the central theme, central message of the book of Hebrews. Please join me beloved as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God we praise you and thank you. Lord we again praise you and thank you as a holy righteous God. We thank you Lord God even that you don't tolerate sin and we are eternally grateful God that you provide a way of escape. And even now Lord as As I pray, as we pray together, we pray that the incense of our prayers, as they waft upwards beyond the veil into the very throne room of God, that they are intermingled with the fragrant incense and aroma of the prayers of our perfect, permanent, and promised high priest, the Lord Jesus, even in your presence. Lord, truths that are just staggering for the mind to comprehend. Be with us, God as we worship you. Be with us as we fellowship. Be with us as we take this message of salvation and forgiveness of sin to a lost and dying world. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, we sing, we do all these things. Amen.